dude Wendy's fries any size for a dollar. Nuh-uh. Yeah. Is that where we're going after this? (laughs) All right, ready? All right, yeah, I'm ready now. Okay. Hello and welcome into the Double Check Podcast. I am Colin. And I'm Brett. And we are more than delighted uh, that you are joining us again today. This is our fourth episode and we are just pleased as Christmas punch that you've decided to come back and, and hear us one more time. Christmas is almost around the corner. At the time of this episode, we're like... A month and a half away. I know. We should do We should do like some, well, we got Thanksgiving first. We should do a Thanksgiving uh, episode and we should do a Christmas episode. I'd be pretty uh, pretty jazzed about that. Well, we can do an episode about how some people think that Thanksgiving is some type of religious holiday. It is. And then... <laughs> I'd be one of those people. We can discuss how that's the case and... I'm going to have to do some research on that. Okay, and then and then we can talk about Christmas, and we can talk about how Jesus wasn't actually born in December. Yeah, he was actually probably born. Uh, we had this discussion. Don't give it away. Well, okay. Well, I'll just I'll just say this discussion I had with because uh, uh, the the thing now is everybody's like, oh, you can only have your Christmas stuff up after Thanksgiving, which I'm like, that is ridiculous. Okay, who made that rule? I I love Christmas, so I may be a little biased, but. If you can't put it up until after Thanksgiving, most years you can only have it up for three weeks then, because then after Christmas, they're going to be like, take it down. But if you consider the fact that Jesus was probably born sometime in early fall, I feel like September 1st, I should be able to put my Christmas decorations up and leave them up to the end of the year. There you go. Well, according to my HOA, which is like an authority in my life, because they tell me what I can and can't do. Yeah, sure. They say that I can keep up decorations for up to four weeks after the past holiday. So I can keep up Christmas decorations until almost the end of January. So if you move to my neighborhood, you could keep up stuff longer. Well, actually, I don't know what the rule is with our HOA. I I don't know. You haven't been through Christmas at your house yet. No. Yeah. You're going to have to figure that out. Yeah. Well, our Christmas decorations are going to be going up pretty soon here. Yeah. I'm going to be putting them up before Thanksgiving and see what they think about that. Yeah. Get some of that, HOA. Get some. Get some. Oh, welcome to the Double Check Podcast. Welcome. Yeah. All right. And uh, <laughs> we are here and we are are ready to go. Uh, I'm Brett and, and he's Colin and we've already said our names. Double Check Podcast is about life, theology, and culture. We have things that we talk about every week. I have an idea that I bring to the table. Colin has his idea. Subscribe and rate, uh, all that good stuff. Send us emails. We want to hear from you and answer your questions. And if we can't answer it, we will find someone that can come into the studio and answer it for you. Or, well, we may, if we can't find somebody who bring it in, we'll find somebody uh, online who can answer it, and we'll just play yeah. the audio for you uh, with, uh, hopefully, uh, no copyright violations. Yep. Just <laughs> write it down, and it'll be fine. Less than 30 seconds, sure. probably. All right. So, let's get to it. Episode four, I need to call the flip again. Yeah, all right, here we go. This is the official flip. That is heads, and that is tails. Okay. Call it. What? What is your call? 
tails. All right, he's going it with tails. It was tails last time. Here's the flip, catch, turn, and it is tails. Tails. Apparently it never fails. It didn't for me today. And I'm going to defer. Okay. I, I feel like we always defer, but there will be a time whenever I'm selfish and I, I go first. But I'm going to defer. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I'll go and take the lead here then. Okay. And uh, you know what? You know something, Brett? I know some things. Okay. Well, this is something that you should know is that we live in a very sad world full of very sad things. But there is something in the mainstream Christian world that is very, very sad. Yet it goes unnoticed most of the time. And I am referring to the typical churchgoer in most or all modern churches, the one who has been sentenced by him or herself as well as by church government to life in an evangelical pew, having truth but not proclaiming it. Now, the pews can take many different forms. They can be folding chairs or church chairs or stadium chairs or movie theater seats or plain old wooden pews. And while they all lend a small measure of comfort and convenience, they are ripe with false, crippling interferences. Over time, they will make a husband less of a husband, a father less of a father, and a man or woman less of a disciple of Christ. But it's not always their fault. This is what the modern church system has given to us. Because, you see, pew people are the product of pulpit people. The few fashion the many, and the many have not been fashioned to proclaim the truth. This is partly why pew people, when they're not in their pews, talk a lot but say very little. They do not know that they have been commissioned to preach the gospel by no less than the head of the church. And the pulpit people rarely, if ever, tell them this. The pew person is not made to understand that she holds more truth than even John the Baptist, the very forerunner of the Messiah. John only knew what the eleven knew, but she has the full gospel message and the complete word of God. The pew person is also aware of the plight of the lost, yet he or she is mostly silent. This is very sad indeed. And a word on pulpit people, may I say, untruth is extremely powerful, though it is much less powerful than truth. Proclaimers of untruth, and by that I mean distortions, exaggerations, misconceptions, or flat-out lies, far outnumber the proclaimers of simple truth today. Those who dispense untruth are far less timid to preach their message. It's just as Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 23, 16, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hope. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. But it takes truth being proclaimed to undo the effects of untruth proclaimed. And you see, this is why the silent pew person is such a sad thing. Because to be effective, truth must be said and said often. And when truth and untruth square off in battle, truth is going to win 100% of the time because truth is a double-edged sword. 
So a final word to the pew woman who holds her truth in silence as she watches the unsaved in the world go about their lives, and to the pew man who sits quietly as untruth is spoken, to the pew person who says nothing as a prophet's own dreams and visions are passed off as being from God, to all who refuse to battle untruth with the truth, remember that to whom much is given, much will be required, and to whom much is committed, of him they will ask the more. Okay. It's inspiring to the everyday Joe in, in the pew that they have more. I, I'm just thinking about in the New Testament, like we have the great evangelists and we'll take the greatest of them all, Paul. It just seems like Paul is the guy that does everything and he's accepting you know, like he accepts giftings from these churches that he helps plant. What you, what you said is inspiring, but I'm, I'm just not seeing that in the New Testament. What, what are you going to say to that? Well, I mean, I think if you read Paul's letters carefully, you do see this. You, you especially see it in the, the greetings. You know, the, these people who are making disciples of others, you know, they didn't write any letters that uh, ended up being canonized in in our in our New Testament, but if you look at like for instance in Romans sixteen, Paul says, "Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus." They those were two people who were working for the for for Christ. They risked their lives for me. Paul says, "Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them." Greet also the church that meets in their house. So here's here's two people who we don't really hear about that much who are out there risking their lives for the gospel. They're Paul's co-workers, so they're definitely out there spreading the gospel. They are, uh, you know, the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them, and they, they have a church that's meeting in their house. He also mentions his dear friend Apentness, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Mary, who worked very hard for you, Andronicus and Junia, his fellow Jews who have been in prison with him, they are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was, Paul says. Ampelatus, my dear friend in the Lord, Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus, Herodian, my fellow Jew, uh, Tri- Tripina, Tryphosa, the women who work very hard in the Lord. My dear friend Persis, another woman who works very hard in the Lord. Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Uh, As I, I can't even pronounce some of these names. Asnicritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brothers and sisters with them. Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people with them. That these are these are the people. These are the Joes. These are the pew people who are out there, and Paul acknowledges that these people are working very hard for the Lord. They are doing the the work of of getting the gospel out. And to insert myself a little bit, I remember reading in Acts. There are times whenever Paul and his cohort show up to cities to plant a church. And they're greeted by what the Bible says is the brothers. Yeah. Like people that are so insignificant that Luke won't even write them down in the book of Acts, and they've already established the church. Like Paul's whole life mission 
in his head was to get to Rome. And if he can just get to Rome, then everything else is like the gospel will spread. He gets there. The brothers have beat him there. And they've established a church for a couple years by that point. You see Paul writing what Colin said. You see him writing by name all these people that we have no clue what they what they do, but they know. He, but we know that Paul saw, saw that they were significant, and that their even little steps of faith were important in the spread of the gospel. What's a Priscilla going to look like today? I what, mean, what is it going to take for a pastor to sit down and write and say, "My my faithful." Josephine, who has done this, what what is a faithful pew person? Well, uh, I mean, I think it's somebody who is not afraid to share the gospel, who is not afraid to speak truth in the face of untruth. Uh, we live in a world where the the attitude of most people is, well, that person's not a Christian, so I'm just not going to talk about my faith with them. And that's the exact opposite of the New Testament model. That person in the New Testament, you know, Priscilla, Mary, Andronicus, these people, they would have said, that person is a, is a pagan. They're a Gentile. They're, they're worshiping idols. They're not following Christ. I need to tell them about Christ because maybe they don't know. You know, and, and the same is true today. Obviously, people have heard of the name of Jesus a whole lot more now that we're 2,000 years this side of the cross. But your average person out there who's not a believer, they really don't know a whole lot about Scripture. They don't know really about what Jesus was about, what his mission is. They think that Christians are, you know, just a bunch of people who don't drink or smoke or, or dance or do it, you know, do any of this stuff. They think it's just about not doing stuff. They don't realize that there's a there's an aspect of living by the Spirit that that you know, that we're all sinners. The, the, the church is made up of sinners saved by grace. That is not something that is commonly known among the Gentiles out there in the world, even though most of the church is Gentiles, by the way, but that's a whole different subject. I, I just want to give you an example. I have a friend, uh, he, he's a pastor out in Long Beach. His name is Joe. And actually, he's a pastor, but for years, he 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 worked as a IT professional. He he had a, he has a computer degree, computer science degree from Carnegie Mellon, and um, he he was a pastor. But he I mean that wasn't what provided his living. He was working in IT, and he used to work with with these two these two guys who were not believers, and they were just kind of talking, and they they would work a lot of late nights. And I remember he told me one night that those two guys were talking about like, oh, Christians just you know, do, do, do this, that, and the other thing. And uh, Joe, you know, took his opportunity to be like, well, yeah, Christians don't actually believe that. And then, you know, the, the door was open when one of them was like, oh, really? Well, what do, they, they knew he was a pastor, you know, mm -hmm. working with them. And they were like, well, what, what do Christians believe, Joe? And he, you know, he had the opportunity to, to share the gospel with them. And that's not something that is commonly... Um, <clears throat> commonly seen among the, the Pew people. That's not really something that would be mentioned by most, uh, I probably am speaking too generally, but by most my, most churchgoers today. Well, let's just say over 50%. Sure. Over 50%. I, I would say that over 50% of your common churchgoers in America right now think that their primary job 
other than doing the right things and not doing the bad things, is to invite people to get inside the door. That's not a bad thing, but why is that not the best thing? That's the question to you. That's the question to me. Yeah, why is that not the best thing? Because it, it, it's, we've talked about this in a previous podcast. The church is not the building that you go to. Like another another kind of story. I had a friend one time who uh, another pastor actually out in Long Beach, also named Joe, but a different guy. I one time you, you're just making these people. Up. No, I'm a hundred percent serious. <laughs> I'm a hundred. You can ask my wife about that they, because there's that that. <laughs> they they were actually pastors at the same church, and they were both named Joe. But uh, one time I asked him uh, wh- where – this is before I had become involved with uh, with that church, but I asked him, where do you go to church? And he said, well, let me ask you a question. What color is 3 p.m.? And I, was, I said, what? And he said, what color is 3 p.m.? You asked me where I go to church. What color is 3 p.m.? I said, that doesn't make any sense. He said, neither does asking where do you go to church <laughs> – that, that is a nonsensical question biblically because you don't go to church. You are the church. You, <laughs> churches go into the world. Churches are the people who are following Christ, and they go into the world to share Christ. That's the great commission. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey all the things that I have taught you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, while it's not a bad thing to say, hey, you know, come to church on Sunday morning, that's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not to go out and invite people to a building on Sunday mornings where they can go for maybe about an hour and sing a song and hear a sermon and go about their day, and that's that's it. That's, you know, may, hopefully come back next week for another hour. The Great Commission is to go and make disciples. That is what Jesus has called us to do. And that is what that's what the church uh, I feel like needs to be about. That's such a cool response that he had, and I'm just thinking of the ways that, like, how many times do I get asked where do you go to church? Like, someone at work sees uh, my Bible sitting on my desk, or they see me, I don't know, working on something for this podcast, and they obviously see that I'm a Christian, and I obviously go to church. Where do you go to church at? You could answer, you know, just the normal, yeah, I go to blankety-blank church. Or you have some kind of comeback like that, which is a little bit of smart aleck, but it's also a way to get the door open a little bit further and have something, have more of a conversation than what we would typically have. Sure. I think that's a good takeaway. Yeah. I'm taking that away right, right now. So where are you going next? Uh, well, I'm going to talk about one of the hindrances of why your your Joe and Sally churchgoer don't really want to share with other people is because this idea of being seeker-friendly. We don't want to offend anybody. That person's not a Christian. I'm not going to talk to them about Jesus. They, well, is that the model that Jesus gave us? Was Jesus seeker-friendly? Uh, and that's I think that's what I'm going to talk about next time. All right, excellent. All right, so we're going to transition over to what I have to say. And I teased it last week. I said that I was going to talk about a doctrine, and the doctrine is Imago Dei. So I know you've been on the edge of your seat for the last whole week. All right, so I'm not going to start a series today, uh, but I am going to explore what I believe is the single most pertinent Christian doctrine to our time and our culture and to me personally. 
This doctrine is called the doctrine of Imago Dei, or in other words, it's, it's Latin for the image of God. This doctrine speaks into so much that our culture deems important. Identity, individuality, abortion, social justice, and the list goes on. Today, I want to convince you that the claims that culture has on certain things either aligns with this doctrine or it is completely against it. For the times that it aligns with this doctrine, it has no justification for its claims without the doctrine as its backbone. And for the times that it denies the implications of the doctrine, it goes against the foundations of the claims that they just made. This idea of being made in the image of God gives credibility and purposefulness to every individual human being on the earth. For me, it shapes the way that I interact with other people, shapes the way that I think about social policy and politics, and it makes me change and think about what I do in my daily life. I would argue that you are also shaped by this or whatever your understanding of it is, whether you believe in God or not. See, without God and the idea that we humans are made in his image, there is virtually no justification, whether it be philosophical or biological, for claims of human worth, significance, and dignity, those things that drive many aspects of cultural and political movements. Let's just take one example happening right now, the Me Too movement. The basis for this movement is that women are equal in significance, worth, and dignity. And to that, I agree wholeheartedly. But where does that significance come from? There are all sorts of people from all sorts of religious backgrounds that are a part of this movement. But to those who don't believe in a creator, I ask them and I say to them, you have the right conclusion the dignity, worth, and significance of all people is important. But how did you get there? It's a correct claim, but their reasoning is built on smoke. Secular materialism, the idea that the world just is what it is physically, lacks the meaning needed to justify a belief in the significance, worth, and dignity of all humans. Richard Dawkins, in the third installment of his documentary, Sex, Death, and the Meaning of Life, argues that the meaning of life is entirely subjective and personal, saying, it is up to each of us to give our own life meaning through our work, our relationships, our passions. But then he goes on, and this is the real kicker. He says, I think through one other thing, understanding who we are and trying to understand why we are here. He says Western science has been trying to answer that last question. There's so much to be explored here, but I'll leave my thoughts summarized in two questions to him. How does anything give significance unto itself? And if everyone does give themselves significance, why am I to see others as significant, having worth, and having dignity? Many of these people want to eat their cake and have it too. They pick and choose implications of the Imago Dei. If we are created by God in his own image, it is not a far leap to say that God created us with a specific design and for a specific purpose. And this is where culture starts to resist. 
Culture says, give us dignity, give us self-worth, give us significance, but you can keep that God's design stuff to yourself. They want the gifts from their creator that empower and embolden them without submitting to the design that pairs with the empowerment. The real conundrum with this is that real significance, real dignity, and real worth are realized in the design. So yes, I would agree with culture and certain movements from it are very good and align with the idea of Imago Dei. I would, however, be the first to point out that they have no foundation for claiming the implications of Imago Dei without the doctrine itself. And when push comes to shove, they will deny the design of God for the preservation of sin in themselves and in the name of a perversion of the Imago Dei, saying something like, well, God made me this way. And now that I've gotten through this, I think I've decided that I'm going to talk more about science and scientists and their ability to answer questions of who and why. But for now, whether you believe in it or not, recognize that the doctrine of Imago Dei provides concrete answers to these questions. I challenge everyone of all beliefs to think about and study this doctrine of Imago Dei being made in the image of God. It will deepen your self-awareness and change the way you think of other people. It may even help you entertain exploring God, because without Him and His design, the claims of culture are built on sinking sand. All right. Well, you uh, you go into a lot there. You talk about um, you know this doctrine, which is a big scary D word that really just means teaching, but it's uh, it, it it's can kind of create a stigma in people's minds as soon as they they hear that yeah, word it's, doctrine. Yes, it's really big and stuffy and it doesn't apply to me right now. Right, exactly. And a lot of times people will conflate the idea of doctrine with the idea of dogma. And uh, I think it's important to note that this is something that is doctrine. This is something that the Bible teaches that, uh, you know, in Genesis 1, God says, let us create man in our image, in the image of God, he created uh, them, male and female, he created them. Uh, but while you talk about the universal value as the the ground of of human rights, that 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 dignity uh, of being made in the image of God um, is really the the backbone. Even though the secular world doesn't want to submit to it, are there any more implications than just the the implications for uh, human value, human dignity? There are more implications than just human value and human dignity. It is something that I think I touched on but didn't have time to go into in depth, and that is how we live our lives. Being made in the image of God, for lack of a better phrase, puts us in debt to God because he created us in a certain way, and we are to adhere to that. It was designed for a certain reason, and that reason is for his glory. And so by being created in his image, we – well, first we owe our life to him. And so through his design, we should be glorifying him because it is not with – I mean, it's not without his power and authority that we have every breath that we are given. So it's not just about human – worth and significance, it, it plays into 
the things that we do every day. Okay. When, when you talk about Genesis 1 and 2, uh, you're talking about Adam and Eve being created in the image of God, right? Uh, yeah, if we want to use that narrative. Okay. And you're therefore extrapolating that out to all mankind, right? That whether you think the Genesis account is literal or not, it doesn't change the fact that the teaching from it is to be applied to all humans thereafter. And Adam and Eve is a picture, whether they were literal or not, which I think that they were literal, but whether they were literal or not, it is a picture of us right now. So, yeah, it applies to all of us. Okay. So, I just want to get your thoughts on this. So, you have in Genesis 1 and 2, God creating Adam and Eve in, in his own image and in his own likeness. Then you have the fall in Genesis 3, right? And then you see the implications of the fall in Genesis 4 with Cain killing Abel. Um, and then the, the story just sort of progresses from there. When you get to Genesis 5, this is uh, usually a, pa- a chapter that people just kind of pass over because it's, it's the line of uh, Adam through Seth. Uh, but there's actually a lot of really interesting stuff in there, and I, I want to get your thoughts on one of the things in there. In uh, Genesis 5, verse 3, it says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness and in his own image, and he named him Seth. So, Seth is in Adam's likeness. What does that mean? Well, God is a creator. He created... Adam, if we are made in his image, then we too are creators, and our creations, our offspring, have a likeness to us. You see where I'm getting? Like the, 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 the image of God that's given to Adam, because of that, Adam too is a creator, and so whenever he creates his offspring— Seth is in in a certain way an image of Adam. That doesn't make Seth any less in the image of God, though. God is the original image giver. Okay. So what do you make of the fall? Was the image of God marred at all by that fall in Genesis 3? The, the fall adds a sin nature to us. Like every human created in the image of God is truly in the image of God, but yet still as Adam passes on to Seth and as Seth passes on to whoever, all the way to us as as our parents passed on to us, we also have an inherited this true sin nature. I'm not going to say that we are fully in the image of God. There are things that have happened to us, and we're not fully in the in the nature of sin. It, we are truly both. Like God has truly given his image to us, and yet we have taken for ourselves this true image of a sin nature. It's kind of like like Jesus is, you hear, you hear some people say fully God and fully man. Like full, you can't be fully two things. You're like fully one thing. So some people have started saying truly God. Like he has all of the characteristics, all of the nature of God the Father, and he also has all of the characteristics of man. So we do have all the characteristics of the image of God, yet we do also have all the characteristics of our fallen sin nature. It One doesn't negate the other. So is that the image of Adam 
that the image of Adam then includes the image of God and this sin nature. So it's not it's not the perfect image of God that Adam and Eve had back in Genesis one. It's it's the image of God plus this this fallen human nature. Correct. I think it's also important to know that I mean in the Psalms it says that we're created uh, God knits us together in our mother's womb. So even though Adam created Seth, like physically, God played a role in that creation of that individual person as well. And through that, imparts a full image of God to him. But yes, through our parents as well. So it is a image of God plus in nature. So why do we have to be born again then? Like Jesus told Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Why, if we're born with this image of God, why are we not children of God right out of the womb? The image of God doesn't justify us before God. The image of God is what we were created to be originally, and we still are, but it's just been tainted by the sin nature. So we don't get there based off of our good works. Like let's say our having the image of God would be our good work. Like we have this good thing. It's not that. It's being able to stand in front of God holy and blameless because God can't have sin in his presence. So if we have this additional sin nature to us, we still require an atoning sacrifice for that, which would be Jesus. Does that make sense? It does. Actually, I you know, I think that I think that our thinking is pretty much uh, similar on this this theology, but I just I wanted to bring that to our listeners' attention there in, in Genesis five this this image of Adam, you know it, it's it's God's image, but it's also marred by this sin nature, and that's what's been passed on to all of us. And you know Genesis five is pretty interesting. Check it out; you will uh, you will not be disappointed. So as I go forward, I think what I'm going to do is, uh, well, I know what I'm going to do. I've uh, decided about halfway through that that thesis that I had is that I'm going to zone in on science and religion just a little bit and just hopefully get our audience thinking in a new direction. And because you said new direction, that means we've come to the end of our time here. New direction. What an awesome band. I think oh, they broke of up. One Direction. Oh, yeah, never mind. Oh, no, New Directions is like a brand of clothes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that the music's playing now, and, and that, I'm getting out of here. That brings us to the rest of our time. I'm going to go shop for some New Direction clothes, and I'm going to listen to I'm going to go listen to One Direction. One Direction <laughs> as I'm now doing it. Now that I know it. their name. <laughs> um, but anyway, we, we are so grateful that you have joined us today. Uh, send us a comment, uh, give us a, a subscription, uh, give us a like, share us with your friends, and give us a rating. Make sure that it's a, a five-star rating. Come on, man, don't be a hater. But uh, we are going to be signing off, and we'll see you next time. See you, nerds. <laughs>